Section 15. Book 3, Part 5 of The Histories by Publius Cornelius Tastus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. The Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Broderip. Book 3. September to December, A.D. 69, Part 5. Then, as if the whole state had passed into the hands of Vespasian, the leading men of the Senate, many of the equestrian order, with all the city's soldiery and the watch, thronged the dwelling of Sabinus. Intelligence was there brought to him of the enthusiasm of the populace, and of the threatening attitude of the German cohorts. He had now gone too far to be able to retreat, and every one, fearing for himself, should the Vitellianists come upon them while they were scattered and comparatively weak, urged him, in spite of his reluctance, to hostilities. As usually happens, however, in such cases, all gave the advice, but few shared the risk. The armed retinue which was escorting Sabinus was met, as it was coming down by the Lake Fundanus, by some of the most determined of the Vitellianists. From this unforeseen collision resulted an encounter slight indeed, but terminating favourably for the Vitellianists. In the hurry of the moment, Sabinus adopted the safest course open to him, and occupied the capital with a miscellaneous body of soldiery, and some senators and knights. It is not easy to give the names of these persons, since after the triumph of Vespasian, many pretended to have rendered this service to his party. There were even women who braved the dangers of the siege, the most conspicuous among them being Veriolana Gratula, who was taken thither not by the love of children or kindred, but by the fascination of war. The Vitellianists kept but a careless watch over the besieged, and thus at the dead of night Sabinus was able to bring into the capital his own children, and Domitian his brother's son, and to send by an unguarded route a messenger to the generals of the Flavianist party, with information that they were besieged, and that, unless succour arrived, they must be reduced to distress. The night passed so quietly that he might have quitted the place without loss, for, brave as were the soldiers of Vitellius in encountering danger, they were far from attentive to the laborious duties of watching. Besides this, the sudden fall of a winter storm baffled both sight and hearing. At dawn of day, before either side commenced hostilities, Sabinus sent Cornelius Martialis, a centurion of the first rank, to Vitellius, with instructions to complain of the infraction of the stipulated terms. There has evidently, he said, been a mere show and pretense of abdicating the empire, with the view of deceiving a number of distinguished men. If not, why, when leaving the rostra, had he gone to the house of his brother, looking as it did over the forum, and certain to provoke the gaze of the multitude, rather than to the Aventine, and the family house of his wife? This would have befitted a private individual anxious to shun all appearance of imperial power. But on the contrary, Vitellius retraced his steps to the palace, the very stronghold of empire, thence issued a band of armed men, 
one of the most frequented parts of the city, was strewed with the corpses of innocent persons. The capital itself had not been spared. I, said Sabinus, was only a civilian and a member of the Senate, while the rivalry of Vitellius and Vespasian was being settled by conflicts between legions, by the capture of cities, by the capitulation of cohorts, with Spain, Germany, and Britain in revolt. The brother of Vespasian still remained firm to his allegiance, till actually invited to discuss terms of agreement. Peace and harmony bring advantage to the conquered, but only credit to the conqueror. If you repent of your compact, it is not against me, whom you treacherously deceived, that you must draw the sword, nor is it against the son of Vespasian, who is yet of tender age. What would be gained by the slaughter of one old man and one stripling? You should go and meet the legions, and fight there for empire. Everything else will follow the issue of that struggle. To these representations, the embarrassed Vitellius answered a few words in his own exculpation, throwing all the blame upon the soldiers, with whose excessive zeal his moderation was, he said, unable to cope. He advised Martialis to depart unobserved through a concealed part of the palace, lest he should be killed by the soldiers, as the negotiator of this abhorred convention. Vitellius had not now the power either to command or to forbid. He was no longer emperor. He was merely the cause of war. Martialis had hardly returned to the capital when the infuriated soldiery arrived, without any leader, every man acting on his own impulse. They hurried at quick march past the forum and the temples which hang over it, and advanced their line up the opposite hill as far as the outer gates of the capital. There were formerly certain colonnades on the right side of the slope as one went up. The defenders, issuing forth on the roof of these buildings, showered tiles and stones on the Vitellianists. The assailants were not armed with anything but swords, and it seemed too tedious to send for machines and missiles. They threw lighted brands on a projecting colonnade, and following the track of the fire would have burst through the half-burnt gates of the capital, had not Sabinus, tearing down on all sides the statues, the glories of former generations, formed them into a barricade across the opening. They then assailed the opposite approaches to the capital, near the grove of the asylum, and where the Tarpian rock is mounted by a hundred steps. Both these attacks were unexpected, the closer and fiercer of the two threatened the asylum. The assailants could not be checked as they mounted the continuous line of buildings, which, as was natural in a time of profound peace, had grown up to such a height as to be on a level with the soil of the capital. A doubt arises at this point whether it was the assailants who threw lighted brands onto the roofs, or whether, as the more general account has it, the besieged thus sought to repel the assailants, who were now making vigorous progress. From them the fire passed to the colonnades adjoining the temples, the eagles supporting the pediment, which were of old timber, caught the flames, and so the capital, with its gates shut, neither defended by friends, nor spoiled by a foe, was burnt to the ground. This was the most deplorable and disgraceful event that had happened to the commonwealth of Rome 
since the foundation of the city. For now, assailed by no foreign enemy, with heaven ready to be propitious, had our vices only allowed, the seat of Jupiter supremely good and great, founded by our ancestors with solemn auspices to be the pledge of empire, the seat which neither Porsena, when the city was surrendered, nor the Gauls, when it was captured, had been able to violate, was destroyed by the madness of our emperors. Once before, indeed, during civil war, the capital had been consumed by fire, but then only through the crime of individuals. Now it was openly besieged, and openly set on fire. And what were the motives of this conflict? What the compensation for so great a disaster? Was it for our country we were fighting? King Tarquinius Priscus had vowed its erection in his war with the Sabines, and had laid the foundations on a scale which suited the hopes of future greatness, rather than what the yet moderate resources of Rome could achieve. After him, Servius Tullius, heartily assisted by the allies, and Tarquinius Superbus, employing the spoils of war from the conquered Suessa Pometia, raised the superstructure. But the glory of its completion was reserved for the days of liberty. After the expulsion of the kings, Horatius Pulvillus, in his second consulate, dedicated it, a building so magnificent that the vast wealth afterwards acquired by the people of Rome served to embellish rather than increase it. It was rebuilt on the same site, when, after an interval of 415 years, it was burnt to the ground in the consulate of Lucius Scipio and Caius Norbanus. Sulla, after his final triumph, undertook the charge of restoring it, but did not live to dedicate it, the one thing denied to his uniform good fortune. The name of Lutatius Catulus, the dedicator, remained among all the vast erections of the emperors, down to the days of Vitellius. This was the building that was now on fire. The catastrophe, however, caused more panic among the besieged than among the besiegers. In fact, the troops of Vitellius lacked neither skill nor courage in the midst of peril. Opposed to them were soldiers without self-possession, and a spiritless and, so to speak, infatuated commander, who had not the use of his tongue or his ears, who would not be guided by other men's counsels, and could not carry out his own, who, hurried to and fro by the shouts of the enemy, forbade what he had just ordered, and ordered what he had just forbidden. Then, as usually happens when everything is lost, all gave orders, and no one obeyed. At last they threw away their arms, and began to look about for ways of escape and means of concealment. The Vitellianists burst in, carrying everywhere with indiscriminate ferocity the firebrand and the sword. A few of the military men, among whom the most conspicuous were Cornelius Martialis, Aemilius Pecensis, Casperius Niger, and Didius Sceva, ventured to resist, and were cut down. Flavius Sabinus, who was unarmed, and who did not attempt to fly, was surrounded, and with him the consul Quinctius Atticus, marked out by his clinging to the shadow of office, 
and by his folly, in having scattered among the people edicts highly eulogistic of Vespasian, and insulting to Vitellius. The rest escaped by various chances, some disguised as slaves, others concealed by the fidelity of dependents, and hiding among the baggage. Some caught the watchword by which the Vitellianists recognized each other, and themselves challenging others and giving it when challenged, found in their audacity an effectual disguise. When the enemy first burst in, Domitian concealed himself in the house of a servant of the temple. At the ingenious suggestion of a freedman, he assumed a linen vestment, and passing unnoticed among a crowd of acolytes, found a refuge with Cornelius Primus, one of his father's dependents, in a house near the Velabrum. When his father mounted the throne, he pulled down the chamber of the temple servant, and built a small chapel, dedicated to Jupiter the Preserver, with an altar on which his own adventures were represented in marble. Afterwards, on his own accession to the imperial power, he consecrated a vast temple to Jupiter the Guardian, with an effigy of himself in the arms of the god. Sabinus and Atticus were loaded with chains, and conducted to Vitellius, who received them with anything but anger in his words and looks, amidst the murmurs of those who demanded the privilege of slaying them, and their pay for the work they had done. Those who were standing near began the clamour, and the degraded rabble cried out for the execution of Sabinus, and mingled threats with their flatteries. Vitellius, who was standing before the steps of the palace, and was preparing to intercede, was induced to desist. The body of Sabinus, pierced and mutilated, and with the head severed from it, was dragged to the Gamoniae. Such was the end of a man in no wise contemptible. In five and thirty campaigns he had served the state, and had gained distinction both at home and abroad. His blamelessness and integrity no one could question. He was somewhat boastful. This was the only fault of which rumour accused him in the seven years during which he had governed Mosia and the twelve during which he was prefect of the city. In the closing scene of his life, some have seen pusillanimity, many a moderate temper, sparing of the blood of his countrymen. One thing is allowed by all, that before the accession of Vespasian, the distinction of the family was centred in Sabinus. I have heard that his death gratified Mucianus, and many indeed asserted that the interests of peace were promoted by the removal of the rivalry between these two men, one of whom felt himself to be the brother of the emperor, while the other thought himself his colleague. Vitellius resisted the demands of the people for the execution of the consul. He was now pacified, and wished, it would seem, to recompense Atticus, who, when asked who had set fire to the capital, had confessed his own guilt, and by this confession, which may indeed have been an opportune falsehood, was thought to have taken upon himself the odium of the crime, and to have acquitted the Vitellianist party. Meanwhile, Lucius Vitellius, 
who was encamped near Feronia, was threatening Tarikina with destruction. There were shut up in the place a few gladiators and seamen, who dared not leave the walls and risk an engagement in the plain. I have mentioned before that Julianus was in command of the gladiators, Apollinaris of the seamen, to men whose profligacy and indolence made them resemble gladiators rather than generals. They kept no watch, they did not strengthen the weak points of the fortifications, but, making each pleasant spot ring with the noise of their daily and nightly dissipation, they dispersed their soldiers on errands which were to minister to their luxury, and never spoke of war, except at their banquets. Apinius Tyro had quitted the place a few days before, and was now, by the harsh exaction of presents and contributions from the towns, adding to the unpopularity, rather than to the resources, of his party. Meanwhile, a slave belonging to Virginius Capito deserted to Lucius Vitellius, and having engaged on being furnished with a force to put him in possession of the unoccupied citadel, proceeded at a late hour of the night to place some light-armed cohorts on the summit of a range of hills which commanded the enemy's position. From this place the troops descended to what was more a massacre than a conflict. Many whom they slew were unarmed or in the act of arming themselves. Some were just awaking from sleep, amid the confusion of darkness and panic, the braying of trumpets and the shouts of the foe. A few of the gladiators resisted, and fell not altogether unavenged. The rest made a rush for the ships, where everything was involved in a general panic, the troops being mingled with country people, whom the Vitellianists slaughtered indiscriminately. Six Liburnian ships with Apollinaris, prefect of the fleet, escaped in the first confusion. The rest were either seized upon the beach, or were swamped by the weight of the crowds that rushed on board. Julianus was brought before Lucius Vitellius, and, after being ignominiously scourged, was put to death in his presence. Some persons accused Triaria, the wife of Lucius Vitellius, of having armed herself with the soldier's sword, and of having behaved with arrogance and cruelty amid the horrors and massacres of the storm of Tarikina. Lucius himself sent to his brother a laurel dispatch with an account of his success, and asked whether he wished him at once to return to Rome, or to complete the subjugation of Campania. This circumstance was advantageous to the state as well as to the cause of Vespasian. Had the army fresh from victory, and with all the pride of success added to its natural obstinacy, marched upon Rome, a conflict of no slight magnitude, and involving the destruction of the capital, must have ensued. Lucius Vitellius, infamous as he was, had yet some energy, but it was not through his virtues, as is the case with the good, but through his vices, that he, like the worst of villains, was formidable. While these successes were being achieved on the side of Vitellius, the army of Vespasian had left Narnia, and was passing the holiday of the Saturnalia in idleness at Ocriculum. The reason alleged for such an injurious delay was that they might wait for Mucianus. Some persons indeed there were who assailed Antonius with insinuations, that he lingered with treacherous intent, after receiving private letters from Vitellius, which conveyed to him the offer of the consulship, 
and of the emperor's daughter in marriage with a vast dowry, as the price of treason. Others asserted that this was all a fiction, invented to please Mucianus. Some again alleged that the policy agreed upon by all the generals was to threaten, rather than actually to attack the capital, as Vitellius's strongest cohorts had revolted from him, and it seemed likely that, deprived of all support, he would abdicate the throne, but that the whole plan was ruined by the impatience and subsequent cowardice of Sabinus, who, after rashly taking up arms, had not been able to defend against three cohorts the great stronghold of the capital, which might have defied even the mightiest armies. One cannot, however, easily fix upon one man the blame which belongs to all. Mucianus did in fact allay the conquerors by ambiguously worded dispatches. Antonius, by a perverse acquiescence, or by an attempt to throw the odium upon another, laid himself open to blame. The other generals, by imagining that the war was over, contrived a distinction for its closing scene. Even Petilius Cerealis, though he had been sent on with a thousand cavalry by crossroads through the Sabine district, so as to enter Rome by the Via Salaria, had not been sufficiently prompt in his movements, when the report of the siege of the capital put all alike on the alert. Antonius marched by the Via Flaminia, and arrived at Saxa Rubra, when the night was far spent, too late to give any help. There he received nothing but gloomy intelligence, that Sabinus was dead, that the capital had been burnt to the ground, that Rome was in consternation, and also that the populace and the slaves were arming themselves for Vitellius, and Petilius Cerealis had been defeated in a cavalry skirmish while he was hurrying on without caution as against a vanquished enemy, the Vitellianists, who had disposed some infantry among their cavalry, met him. The conflict took place not far from the city among buildings, gardens, and winding lanes, which were well known to the Vitellianists, but disconcerting to their opponents, to whom they were strange. Nor indeed were all the cavalry one in heart, for there were with them some who had lately capitulated at Narnia, and who were anxiously watching the fortunes of the rival parties. Tullius Flavianus, commanding a squadron, was taken prisoner. The rest fled in disgraceful confusion, but the victors did not continue the pursuit beyond Fidenae. By this success the zeal of the people was increased. The mob of the city armed itself. Some few had military shields, the greater part seized such arms as came to hand, and loudly demanded the signal of battle. Vitellius expressed his thanks to them, and bade them sally forth to defend their capital. Then the senate was called together, and envoys were selected to meet the armies, and urge them, in the name of the commonwealth, to union and peace. The reception of these envoys was not everywhere the same. Those who fell in with Petilius Cerealis were exposed to extreme peril, for the troops disdained all offers of peace. The praetor Ariolanus Rusticus was wounded. This deed seemed all the more atrocious when, over and above the insult offered to the dignity of the envoy and praetor, men considered the private worth of the man. His companions were dispersed, and the lictor that stood next to him, venturing to push aside the crowd, was killed, 
had they not been protected by an escort provided by the general, the dignity of the ambassador, respected even by foreign nations, would have been profaned with fatal violence by the madness of Roman citizens before the very walls of their country. The envoys who met Antonius were more favourably received, not because the troops were of quieter temper, but because the general had more authority. One Musonius Rufus, a man of equestrian rank, strongly attached to the pursuit of philosophy and to the tenets of the Stoics, had joined the envoys. He mingled with the troops, and, enlarging on the blessings of peace and the perils of war, began to admonish the armed crowd. Many thought it ridiculous, more thought it tiresome. Some were ready to throw him down and trample him under foot, had he not yielded to the warnings of the more orderly and the threats of others, and ceased to display his ill-timed wisdom. The Vestal Virgins also presented themselves with a letter from Vitellius to Antonius. He asked for one day of truce before the final struggle, and said that if they would permit some delay to intervene, everything might be more easily arranged. The sacred virgins were sent back with honour, but the answer returned to Vitellius was that all ordinary intercourse of war had been broken off by the murder of Sabinus and the conflagration of the capital. Antonius, however, summoned the legions to an assembly and endeavoured to calm them, proposing that they should encamp near the Mulvian Bridge and enter the capital on the following day. His reason for delay was the fear that the soldiers, once exasperated by conflict, would respect neither the people nor the senate, nor even the shrines and temples of the gods. They, however, looked with dislike on all procrastination as inimical to victory. At the same time, the colours that glittered among the hills, though followed by an unwarlike population, presented the appearance of a hostile array. They advanced in three divisions, one column straight from where they had halted along the Via Flaminia, another along the bank of the Tiber, a third moved on the Colline Gate by the Via Solaria. The mob was routed by a charge of the cavalry. Then the Vitellianist troops, themselves also drawn up in three columns of defence, met the foe. Numerous engagements with various issue took place before the walls but they generally ended in favour of the Flavianists, who had the advantage of more skilful generalship. Only that division suffered, which had wound its way along narrow and slippery roads to the left quarter of the city, as far as the gardens of Sallust. The Vitellianists, taking their stand on the garden walls, kept off the assailants with stones and javelins till late in the day, when they were taken in the rear by the cavalry, which had then forced an entrance by the Colline Gate. In the Campus Martius also the hostile armies met, the Flavianists with all the prestige of fortune and repeated victory, the Vitellianists rushing on in sheer despair. Though defeated, they rallied again in the city. The populace stood by and watched the combatants, and as though it had been a mimic conflict, encouraged first one party and then the other by their shouts and plaudits. Whenever either side gave way, they cried out that those who concealed themselves in the shops or took refuge in any private house should be dragged out and butchered, and they secured the larger share of the booty. 
for while the soldiers were busy with bloodshed and massacre, the spoils fell to the crowd. It was a terrible and hideous sight that presented itself throughout the city. Here raged battle and death, there the bath and the tavern were crowded. In one spot were pools of blood and heaps of corpses, and close by prostitutes and men of character as infamous. There were all the debaucheries of luxurious peace, all the horrors of a city most cruelly sacked, till one was ready to believe the country to be mad at once with rage and lust. It was not indeed the first time that armed troops had fought within the city. They had done so twice when Sulla, once when Cinna triumphed. The bloodshed then had not been less, but now there was an unnatural recklessness, and men's pleasures were not interrupted even for a moment. As if it were a new delight added to their holidays, they exulted in and enjoyed this scene, indifferent to parties, and rejoicing over the sufferings of their commonwealth. The most arduous struggle was the storming of the camp, which the bravest of the enemy still held as a last hope. It was, therefore, with peculiar energy that the conquerors, among whom the veteran cohorts were especially forward, brought to bear upon it at once all the appliances which had been discovered in reducing the strongest cities, the testudo, the catapult, the earthwork, and the firebrand. They repeatedly shouted that all the toil and danger they had endured in so many conflicts would be crowned by this achievement. Their capital has been restored to the Senate and people of Rome, and their temples to the gods. But the soldier's peculiar distinction is in the camp. This is his country, and this his home. Unless this be recovered forthwith, the night must be passed under arms. On the other hand, the Vitellianists, though unequal in numbers and doomed to defeat, could yet disturb the victory, delay the conclusion of peace and pollute both hearth and altar with blood, and they clung to these last consolations of the vanquished. Many, desperately wounded, breathed their last on the towers and ramparts. When the gates were torn down, the survivors threw themselves in a body on the conquerors, and fell to a man, with their wounds in front and their faces turned towards the foe, so anxious were they even in their last hours to die with honour. When the city had been taken, Vitellius caused himself to be carried in a litter through the back of the palace to the Aventine, to his wife's dwelling, intending, if by any concealment he could escape for that day, to make his way to his brother's cohorts at Tarakina. Then, with characteristic weakness, and following the instincts of fear, which, dreading everything, shrinks most from what is immediately before it, he retraced his steps to the desolate and forsaken palace, whence even the meanest slaves had fled, or where they avoided his presence. The solitude and silence of the palace scared him. He tried the closed doors, he shuddered in the empty chambers, till, wearied out with his miserable wanderings, he concealed himself in an unseemly hiding-place, from which he was dragged out by the tribune Julius Placidus. His hands were bound behind his back, and he was led along with tattered robes, a revolting spectacle, amidst the invectives of many, 
the tears of none. The degradation of his end had extinguished all pity. One of the German soldiers met the party and aimed a deadly blow at Vitellius, perhaps in anger, perhaps wishing to release him the sooner from insult. Possibly the blow was meant for the tribune. He struck off that officer's ear and was immediately dispatched. Vitellius, compelled by threatening swords, first to raise his face and offer it to insulting blows, then to behold his own statues falling round him, and more than once to look at the rostra and the spot where Galba was slain, was then driven along till they reached the Gamonii, the place where the corpse of Flavius Sabinus had lain. One speech was heard from him showing a spirit not utterly degraded, when to the insults of a tribune he answered, Yet I was your emperor. Then he fell under a shower of blows, and the mob reviled the dead man with the same heartlessness with which they had flattered him when he was alive. Lucaria was his native place. He had nearly completed his fifty-seventh year. His consulate, his priesthood, his high reputation, his place among the first men of the state. He owed, not to any energy of his own, but to the renown of his father. The throne was offered him by men who did not know him. Seldom have the affections of the army attached themselves to any man who sought to gain them by his virtues, as firmly as they did to him, from the indolence of his character. Yet he had a certain frankness and generosity, qualities indeed which turn to a man's ruin unless tempered with discretion. Believing that friendship may be retained by munificent gifts rather than by consistency of character, he deserved more of it than he secured. Doubtless it was good for the state that Vitellius should be overthrown, but they who betrayed Vitellius to Vespasian cannot make a merit of their treachery, since they had themselves revolted from Galba. The day was now fast drawing to a close, and the Senate could not be convened, owing to the panic of the magistrates and senators, who had stolen out of the city, or were concealing themselves in the houses of dependents. When nothing more was to be feared from the enemy, Domitian came forward to meet the leaders of the party. He was universally saluted by the title of Caesar, and the troops, in great numbers, armed as they were, conducted him to his father's house. End of Book 3, Part 5